Lord, we come to you now and thank you for the chance to gather and that we have communion as brothers and sisters in Christ. Would you come and speak? And Lord, would you help uh, your servants to listen? Would you help us hear the gospel and hear you speak to us? That you are a God who has chosen to love us and to draw us to yourself with loving kindness. Oh God, would you come and show your love to us again today? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me say a word just very quickly in terms of how honored I am and what a privilege it is, especially to be with folks who are preparing for ministry and pastoral ministry. You won't know, there's no way in the world you're going to ever have greater joys or greater pain. (laughs) And so I pray that your preparation here at Truett uh, enables you, gives you tools and the tool belt. won't be the last time you need to learn, but it will be hopefully a great start. It's planting seeds. And then those of you who are also helping prepare those who are preparing for ministry. Thank you. What a great privilege it is to be able to be with you this morning. So John uh, is a good friend. I'm trying to get see if this thing... There we go. Great. So here's the topic for this morning. And um, you heard the passage read from the book of Job. So here's a little bit of the background to why we're here this morning, why I'm here. Bart on Job, how Bart's critique of religion plays at Bonnaroo and big-time sports. That was what my good friend John White asked me to do. What a cool thing he's doing with sports ethics here. Sports is such a huge part of our culture, and unfortunately, it's oftentimes um, just kind of handed over to everybody else or those folks who are thinking theologically about it. They're, They're few and rare. But those folks who use religion in the context of sports are actually quite prevalent. So I remember when I was a campus minister at Auburn University, one of the chaplains, one of the local pastors, once referred to Jordan-Hare Stadium as the holy holy ground. That that Jordan-Hare Stadium is the football stadium for Auburn University. And what I'd like to do this morning is take a little bit of Bart on Job to help you see how Bart thinks about a critique of religion. And by critique of religion, he doesn't mean other religions. He means Christianity and the way in which we embody the Christian faith. So by critique of religion, it's not critiquing the other. It's critiquing ourselves, self-critique, about how we express the Christian faith. His critique of religion has echoes... Booker, when he talks about Job in 4.3, that was what I devoted my dissertation to. And so what I'd like to do is introduce you to Bart on Job. Take the passage from Job that you heard read, especially verse 1.9, which was a very key aspect of Bart's reading of the book of Job, which is the question that the Satan, Satan, right? And you remember that this word is not translated. It's just transliterated. So the Satan, or if we were going to translate it, You know, the prosecuting attorney, the one who brings the charge, the accusation is is that Job serves God for nothing. That for nothing is the key, one of the keys to Bart's reading of the book of Job. There's a a reading of the book of Job that actually spans some 50 years. When I first started my project, I was interested in Bart on evil. And, of course, 3-3 in contemporary Bart studies... Folks typically will focus on Bart on 
3.3 in his description there of evil as having been already overcome and judged and abolished, which can throw us for a loop, right? Because we know the reality of, of evil continues. And Bart was not questioning that. What he was questioning, though, is who is competent, who is able to deal with this beast of evil that resides within as well as we're often complicit in it when others systemically complicit in it as well. So scholarly attention in bar studies is focused on Karl Barth's discussion of evil in 3.3. What I did was I turned to a relatively little research, rarely recognized influence upon Barth's thought, his engagement with the book of Job, which spans some 40 years from Siphonville when he was a pastor. Um, he's first in Geneva, right, at Calvin's old church. Then he goes and he's the solo pastor in Siphonville, a small village, Swiss village. And I had a chance to be there, was there in summer 2005. It's there, 1917, 1918, where I found first references to the book of Job and his use of the book of Job pastorally in a confirmation class. And you basically have, everybody knows about nine, the famous nine to Bruner in 1934. But you have the rejection of natural theology even there in 1917, 1918, not because of philosophical uh, wrestling, but because as he looks at Job, he sees that so often we're speculative when we begin to speak about who God is and we tend to try to engage and use the intellect, which of course Bart does. He was not a fetus. But he sees there in the book of Job problems with approaches to natural theology. So from 1917, 1918 all the way until Church Dogmatics 4.3. And this is what Bart on Job, folks who think about Bart on Job, they typically think about these four excurses in Church Dogmatics 4.3 in the notoriously real small little print. And so what I tried to do was look at uh, what he was doing early on all the way through the writing of that in 4.3. And so in, 19, in 2005, I went over to, uh, was in Basel, went to his library, went through everything he had in terms of commentaries on the book of Job, notes that he had made and margins, those kind of things. I wanted to know what, who he was reading to understand why he came to where he came with the book of Job. So at the end of the day, this passage, the, the, uh, the inter- interaction, exegesis, with the book of Job in 4.3 comes under this section where Bart is dealing with the issue of humanity's propensity to lie. So it's under the section where he's talking about Jesus as prophet, the true witness, and in contrast to that, how we often are duplicitous and we tend to uh, use falsehood and especially false piety. And so the section... Paragraph 70, the falsehood and condemnation of man. Make no mistake that there's a reason why Bard is doing this with Job as a true witness, who he sees as a true witness, and in contrast to Job, Job's three friends, who he considers to be masters of apologetics, which, of course, if you know Bart, that makes, makes sense. Here's what Brevard Childs, an Old Testament scholar who was at Yale for a long time, here's what he said about Bart on Job. Only recently, this was, this was in uh, 1969, at a colloquium held at Yale Divinity School. 
Childs writes, says, Only recently I've been reading what Bart does with Job in his latter volumes. And of course he's talking about 4.3. And again, it is fantastic to, fantastic to see all sorts of new vistas opened up that no one has seen before. In what sense this is exegetical method? And in what sense this is just Bart's own genius? That remains an open question. Later, Childs would write in a comments on a student's seminar paper for a wisdom literature course. It was actually the wife of my advisor at Princeton, George Hunsinger's wife, Deborah, took this seminar with Reverend Childs on wisdom literature. So her, she wrote an essay on Bart's reading of the book of Job. So I asked her, hey, could, did Childs make any comments? And she, she goes, oh, yeah, he wrote a whole page here. So here's one of the things he says some 27 years later after he finds Bart's reading of Job so amazing. He writes, Bart's exegesis for all its brilliant insights, massive stimulus, remained a virtuoso performance, the term is Paul McGlasson's, which could not be duplicated, duplicated and which left little lasting impact either on the biblical academy or on the church. Here the contrast with the enduring biblical contribution of the reformers is painfully evident. Here's, here's what, in one sense, um, there, there are, you have Bart scholars on your faculty already. Um, in my read of what's going on in Bart studies, the next cool step, stage, would be to look at, for instance, Bart on Job or Bart on Isaiah. There's a book out that, in which one person does that. Or uh, Bart on the book of Revelation. Or Bart on, of course, you know, he's known for Romans and whatnot. Philippians as well. Um, that would be a very cool thing, not only just for the academy, for understanding Bart's studies, but especially for pastors. Because when you go to preach a book, to be able to pull that off the shelf would be a gem. And uh, perhaps uh, Bart's uh, most lasting contribution so that's what I did with my dissertation. Here in a nutshell, let me try to present to you some of the things Bart on Job and hopefully also hear the gospel in the midst of this. The critique of religion you'll hear when we talk about Job's three friends in just a minute and their mastery of God. Some of you are doing uh, the Master of Divinity degree. And I've, I've often kind of uh, uh, thought uh, in a very positive way about those folks who did a BD, right, a Bachelor of Divinity instead of a Master of Divinity. Why? Because think about the title, the name of the degree, Master of Divinity. Now, in a nutshell, that's what Bart's read is on Job's three friends. Bart takes real seriously in the prologue and the epilogue what God, God's testimony about Job. He's a man that there's nobody else like him according to what God says about Job, chapter 1, chapter 2, and then chapter 42. But in the midst of that, you got these dialogues, right, with Job's three friends, which is what makes the book of Job so difficult to understand. You don't always know who's speaking. What he finds there is that Job's three friends, unlike Job, who's free and has been freed by the true God, the free God, not an idol a God of our own construction, our own imagination. But he's free to do what he does in chapter 3. In chapter 3, Job finally opens his mouth. 
And when I was preaching this, I entitled it Raw, Uncensored, and Uncut. And Job's three friends can't handle it. It is too raw. In my hometown back in Atlanta, where I'm pastoring, the high school where my kids are attending high school, my son just graduated two years ago. Two years ago in the spring, in January, a young man took his life. In February, a young man took his life. In March, a third young man took his life. My daughter was in the classroom with one of those young men. I know this. I don't know a whole lot, but I do know this, that there are things going on in younger generation inside of us that if we don't develop pastoral skill of being able to enable folks to go below the surface, to deal honestly with what's going on underneath there, and if we don't do a better job in the church of helping moms and dads do that, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, love it, there's a whole lot of pain. And there's a whole lot more pain to come. The generation that we deal with right now is at risk, the younger generation, not just because there's more weed available, okay? (laughs) It's because the ability to deal with what's going on inside of them. There's so many other distractions. Those of you might know Pascal and his his Ponce's. He talks about diversions. There's so many other diversions such that a person, a young person, they doesn't have to deal with what's going on. And frankly, moms and dads, we don't always want to take the time to do so. So if for no other reason, rediscovering wisdom literature in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, especially what the voice that Job gives, it's a voice of lament. And this is what I did appreciate about Bart's reading of Job. Didn't, didn't agree with everything, but really appreciate the fact that he draws out the lament, chapter 3, and then as, as, uh, as he reads the rest of the book of Job. Here's what I did last yesterday with some chapel undergrad students. We talked about Bonnaroo or Bust, broken people in a broken world, and of course wanted to introduce them to the book of Job. Where did the Bonnaroo come from? My daughter last year asked me for her birthday gift if I could take her to Bonnaroo. Bonnaroo is this 90,000 folks, young people, who descend on this farm in Tennessee. So for those of us who are older, old fogies, it's a modern-day, contemporary-day uh, Woodstock. Now, I didn't know that Bonnaroo was Bonnaroo when I was asked my, by my daughter for a birthday gift present to take her and two friends to Bonnaroo. So last June, I was with our, young, our staff team, most of whom are younger than I am, and we're at a coffee place and told them I was going to be out of town next week at Bonnaroo, and they go, you're going to Bonnaroo? Well, I'm not going to let my daughter go without me. That's for doggone sure, all right? So Bonnaroo, 90,000 people, and you actually pull in. And once you get in, you can't leave because you're locked in. These are all cars who are parked, and in between them, they're tents. So there's a tent here and a tent here and a tent there and right beside one another. So early one morning, the guy in the tent next to us wakes up, and he takes a big yawn and says, oh, that was good sleep. Well, time to get high. So I texted one of my buddies. I said, hey, man, can you get high on secondhand reefer smoke? <laughs> There's a whole lot of it going on there. Well, here's, it was a, it was a blast. Now, I'm, I, I, literally, I had never been to a concert. I'm 47 years old. When I told my wife, my wife didn't even know that. 
I told my kids that. You've never been to a, no, no, I was playing sports all growing up, right? So I never went to a concert. I'm so glad my youngest son is into music. It was a blast. This was not a blast. 90,000 people on the farm with no, uh, no uh, way of using the restroom other than these porta potties. Most disgusting experience I've ever had. And here's the reality. At Bonnaroo, no one's wearing a mask. Everybody's real. I had some of the best conversations I've ever had. I thought to myself, man, I wish I could have this conversation every day back in Atlanta with folks. Because why? Because there's no pretension. I mean, you're wearing shorts. Nobody's taking a shower for four days. You're using the bathroom in a porta potty. It's not a place where you then put on this superficial veneer of a mask or facade and you're, you're not real with folks. Now, it might be that some folks are more vulnerable and real with me because of what they've been smoking. But at the end of the day, Soren Kierkegaard has this line where he writes in his diary, he comes home from a party, and he goes, I'm, I was the life of the party, and now I want, to take, I want to take my own life. He has this line, every person must, it comes a midnight hour where every person must unmask. Well, the great thing about Bonnaroo, nobody's wearing masks. Everybody's being pretty real because they know they're all screwed up. So there's no defense mechanism trying to keep <laughs> from being honest about that. So here's the point. Bonnaroo or bust, either the gospel that we believe, beloved, either this God who has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ and has loved you and me and says in Jeremiah 31 that I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you to me with loving kindness. Either that's true and real for real folks who have real problems and pain and suffering and cries of the heart, or it's bust. Literally, let's just shut down shop. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to present a gospel to people that doesn't meet them at a place like a Bonnaroo. A person who's struggling, whether it's at Bonnaroo, the person on the street, or the person in the corporate headquarters. In our context in Alpharetta, in Roswell, North Atlanta, the struggle is how do you bring together folks from differing socioeconomic status? Because we have folks who live behind gates with a lot of money. And then we have folks who are homeless, who are both part of our church community. The gospel, if it's real and if it's true, the image that we're given in the New Testament is that the gospel is able to bridge those kind of gaps so that we reject our xenophobia, we get to know folks who are different than us, we value, appreciate those differences, it enriches us instead of being impoverished. The church, beloved, at least in my context, is so greatly impoverished because they don't know. Sometimes we don't know we're so out of touch with where folks are. So this was a great experience for me, especially in light of coming off of having three young men in our community take their own lives. What was expressed now positively at Bonnaroo, the music, the play, the expression of the heart, all of that in terms of sports and culture, that's part of what, why John White's doing what he's doing and why 
Truett Seminary and Baylor is to be commended because sport is the same thing. In the same way that you see people going bananas, my daughter stood in line for five hours with her best, other two best friends so she could be on the front row when this singer came up, this, one of her favorites who I'd never heard of before. Now, people were going crazy. They're hot. Now, those of you who remember women's soccer at the, uh, in L.A., and the person kicks the winning goal, and she immediately takes off her jersey. And, of course, she had a sports bra on, and folks criticized her for that. But at the end of the day, did she plan that? No, that's expression of the heart. That's expressing what's going on inside of her. In the same way that music does that in a beautiful way and has been a godsend, a savior for one of my children, in the same way sports can be understood in the same way as an art form expression of what's going on inside of us. The problem is, for most of us who are involved in sports, it has become an idol. Only good things, right, typically become idols when we make them an end of themselves. And so what Bart has to say about the book of Job, and what I think is in the book of Job, actually addresses the issue of those who want to use religion in a certain way to manipulate God to bless them. So in a nutshell, what, Job do, what Bart does is he brings out cries of the heart, or uh, I won't say the German word, my kids kid me about, having studied six languages, I can't speak any of them, have a hard enough time with English. But the whole notion of lament for Bart was huge. I think he gets that right. There's no answers in the book of Job. In fact, what's going on is an attempt to debunk those who think they have all the answers, right? Job's three friends as they come to him. Another way of thinking about what, what I have been doing with Bart on Job and is the issue of God after Auschwitz are Bart on evil and reconceiving Bart on theodicy, not as an explanation, but as the end or the telos being ethics. He has a lot to say about Job's three friends who do not have a whole lot of empathy. I mean, for the prologue, they're amazingly virtuous, right? They come from a long distance. They sit for seven and a half days and nights, seven days and nights in silence with Job on the ash heap. I love John White, but I don't think I'd ever spend seven days, seven nights in silence with him. The problem then is Job opens his mouth. And then they open their mouth in response. Here's the real issue. Why Book of Job, what a beautiful piece of literature. Obviously, the whole Bible, too, addresses the, where we are in the human condition. Eleanor Stump put it this way. She philosopher it. St. Louis University, the crust of the earth is soaked with the tears of suffering. How do we not give up on the goodness of God in the face of horrendous evils? It's not like the book of Job gives us answers to it. And, jo- and Bart doesn't think that. In 3.3, Bart refers to the end, the Yahweh speeches where Yahweh shows up in the book of Job. And he refers to that as the great theodicy, the end of the book of Job, the last few chapters. He doesn't mean by that a great explanation of why. What he means by that is there is another way of thinking about the theodicy question that drives us to wanting and longing for a person, the person of God. Moltmann put it it this way in dealing with the issue of theodicy. 
in a chapter entitled The Pit, Where Was God? Jewish and Christian Theology After Auschwitz. Moltmann describes a scene in a Ukrainian town not far from Kiev where on August 23, 1941, 90 Jewish children all under the age of 8 years old were shot, thrown into a pit, and buried there. We have several young children under the age of 8 years old in our church. Think about that. In reflecting upon the shame and horror of this act by his own fellow countrymen, Moltmann points to two different sets of questions that emerge, right? There's two different, at least two different sets, right? Maybe not just two, two, but at least two. First, there are what Moltmann dubs as theoretical questions, which ask, why did God permit this? According to Moltmann, this first set of questions are asked only by the, quote, onlookers. Onlookers who know perfectly well, according to Moltmann, that, quote, any answer that begins because would make a mockery of the sufferers and would blaspheme God. Here's where Levinas, I saw resonances with, between Bart and Re- Levinas. Levinas has talked about the end of theodicy, meaning that when people sit there and look as a third-party observer, we usually, this is usually third-person third discourse, we're talking about somebody else's suffering. And when we come up with theoretical answers, the problem is we actually, that's generative of evil itself, rather than actually entering into the evil, or actually saying, hey, stop <laughs> this evil or suffering. So, same way Moltmann says, look, any answer that begins because some explanatory philosophical understanding of theodicy, typically the game that's being played is in theodicy, there's an appeal to some greater good. The greater good is either soul-making, Irenaeus, John Hick, character building. It's not that God can't use evil and suffering in our life, right? He can. We know that. The question is, is that an ultimate explanation for why? So soul-making theodicy, second theodicy, natural law theodicy, the same natural laws enable us to have fun at the lake means that my best friend, one of my good friends, Tommy Cox, drowned in that lake. Because of certain natural laws, right, God creates a world in which we inhabit. Sometimes there's negative results of that. Third theodicy, free will or freedom, which is what we all love to go to. At the end of the day, though, with all three of those, those kind of, that's kind of the typology of, of theodicy, reflections about how I'm trying to explain why there's some greater good that exists in the world because God allowed, ordained, permitted evil. At the end of the day, all three of those flounder on this. In our system of justice, if I know my children are being abused and I have the ability to stop it, I can be charged with depraved indifference because I have the power to stop it, but I'm not stopping it. So in 1991, I took a train ride from Prague to Auschwitz and Birkenau, two largest death, Nazi death, death camps. Now, I had become a Christian high school coach, shared Christ with me in college. I'd read some little Christian apologetics books. And all of a sudden now, I'm walking around Auschwitz and Birkenau going, oh, wait a minute. God, at some point, didn't you care? Didn't you want to intervene? All of us would intervene for our children, would we not? And so at the end of the day, the whole idea of why and answering that, Bart never goes there. What he does is he redirects the odyssey towards the end or telos of ethics. 
Here's what Moltmann says. Then Moltmann continues by declaring, we can't, and this is important, we cannot answer the question, why in this world, but we cannot let it drop either. You can't drop the theodicy question. You just can't. That's where people are living. They're experiencing all kind of suffering in the world. You can't answer it, but at the end of the day, you can't let it drop either. So Walt Moltmann says, we have to exist in the question and with it as with an open wound in our lives. Moltmann maintains that this why question is predicated upon the premise of an apathetic God, a God who's completely indifferent, doesn't care, separate from us, who is supposed to justify himself in the face of suffering. In contrast to that, right, Moltmann goes to suffering God too. Bonhoeffer says this in a letter from prison. Bart picks up, Bart says basically the same thing. At the end of the day, God has not given us answers in terms of theoretical explanations. But he's given us himself. That in the incarnation, that even at the cry, in the cry of dereliction, where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That in that very moment, as he's descending into hell, Bart read that, the Apostles' Creed, that line, the same way Calvin did. That that's happening at the cross. That Bart sees God freely choosing to enter into and descend even into hell. Why? Because he loves us at the end of the day. It's a free choice. He's not compelled. There's nothing outside of him forcing him to do that. Something which you and I would never do for another person. At the end of the day, that is where the only theodicy, the theodicy of the cross, that we have to rest. And so, how, how, does this, how, does the, how does the book of Job and this dialogue with Job's three friends relate to critique of, of, uh, Bart's critique of religion? Here's in a nutshell what the three friends are saying, and I think this will, you'll, you'll catch it right away. If you do good, then you'll get good. If you do bad, then you'll get bad. So do good, then God will bless you. In a nutshell, that's part of wisdom tradition. There's, there's certain proverbs, there's Galatians 4, 7, you reap what you sow. Insofar as everything else is considered equal, that may be the case. That if you do good, you get good. If you work hard, my wife works hard, very conscientious person. She got promoted to be a store manager. If you show up drunk to your, intoxicated at your work, you're probably going to get fired, right? Okay, there's, so there's something true about that. But what Job's three friends are doing is using... These formulas, you're suffering, Job, 4.8. You're suffering, Job. So it's got to be because you've sinned. And then catch this in chapter 8. Repent, Job. Then God will shower you with the good life. Bar's critique of religion is how we oftentimes use this God of our imagination or even our expressions of Christianity in our churches, which should always be critique, continual critique. His critique of religion is that we use God and attempt to manipulate God for our own ends. In the same sense, he saw Job's three friends doing the same thing. Here, with tremendous ingenuity. They're even using religious formulas like repentance. Is it ever wrong to say to somebody, hey, you need to repent. We need to live out and lead in repentance. Well, in this case, look, repent, Job, then God will shower you with the good life. So my freshman year at University of Alabama, 
I'm playing shortstop. I'm sitting on the bench a lot, but I'm still at shortstop with this other shortstop. He notices I have this cross on the back of my hat. So Todd asked me, he says, hey, are you a Christian? And I said, hell yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, I didn't realize at the time that when you make your profession of faith, you usually don't use profanity in the process. But it is a biblical word. So. But I say, I, say, I say, hell yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, are you? And he goes, yeah. So we, get, we have a relationship with not. Over a period of the next two years, I begin to see, you know why I had that cross on the back of my hat? It's kind of like a lucky rabbit's foot. Maybe you've seen somebody do this thing right before they're hitting. Guys from Catholic traditions, perhaps. Or The night before my comprehensive exams, you know, you sit for your comprehensive exams, you write all these pages. There were going to be nine faculty from theology department who were going to examine me the next day. What do you think I was doing that night before? I was on my knees confessing every sin I could possibly remember. Oh, Lord, you know, if you forgot about that one, Lord, we do this. See, Bart's point is, it's not that he's ripping Job's three friends as if that's not something we do. It's something we do because the brotherless ego, Bart's phrase, I loved it, the brotherless ego within us causes us to focus not upon the brother, or sister who's in pain and empathy. But what we do is we experience our lives as if we have this brotherless ego. Repeating Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? Why should I give a hill of beans about evil that does not directly touch me? This past, let me close with this. This past Sunday, you can see then, think about the last time you saw sports. And the references to religion are to God. I want to thank God for this victory. Okay, so I'm dying to see the person who a team that loses, and they say, I, thank, I want to thank God for opportunity to have worshipped him in this game in which we got our tails kicked. Because that's what John, that's what the, if you've done the ultimate training camp here, I know they offer this as a course now. That was the week that, changed, that God used in my life 20 years ago to change my life. To realize, oh, I'm using sport as an idol. And oftentimes, the reason why you got to do good theology about sport is because there's really bad theology that's used in sports today. And to help folks see, guys, this is not a lucky rabbit's foot. It's not a means of manipulating God, making God only have instrumental value because of what he can give us at the end of the day. That, beloved, would be to take up the language discourse of the Satan. Well, God, you, only, you know that Job only worships you because of what you give him. I got a call this past week from a federal prison. A guy named Donnie who's in prison. The brother has blessed me because he's a guy who's facing suffering. And he calls me just to encourage me. God really laid you on my heart today, John. I wanted to call you. Beloved, that's not a guy who's using God to manipulate God to try to get himself out of prison or get himself off the hook for what he's done. That's a brother who's experiencing God, giving himself to him, even at the place, it's King once referred to it, the sacrament of prison. 
Beloved, that is a God who can speak to folks who are at Bonnaroo. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here. My brothers and sisters, would you, would you remind every person here how you have loved us in Christ to such an extent that you have freely chosen to descend into hell at the cross for us to experience the full alienation, abandonment, and rejection that we as humanity have experienced in turning our backs on you. Thank you, O oh God, that you did, pursued us to that end. And would you continue to shape us to be men and women who would give witness to you and to your love to a broken world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.